connected in relationship in a connect group. So there's still time to do that. I know we have groups that are still open. And uh, Pastor Kevin, I didn't ask you ahead of time, but how many groups do we currently have? How many engaged? We've got plenty of room, I think. 11 groups, and we've got thousands that want to be in them, so get in it right away so that you're uh, connected with others. We're going to continue our series this morning on Rescue the Perishing, and I also want to do a little plug for Wednesday night. Come and join us. This past week, I've had comments on one side of the spectrum, how much people are enjoying this study, and others who are saying, wow, that was a lot. So we had our big one this Wednesday night on the Adorable Godhead but I want you to join with us while we engage, and it goes right along with this series, while we engage in the doctrines that we believe. I am convinced that the church cannot be strong without a solid foundation of doctrine. That simply is what we believe. And this morning, we're talking about rescuing the perishing. We've talked about uh, back to church month and how important it is to reach the unreached, to reach the underreached, but also to reach those who have left the church, the de-churched or the deconstructed and how we can reach them. And last week we talked about how this needs to be a safe place for us to talk about what we doubt. It needs to be a safe place to talk about what we doubt. Now, the balance, the other side of the coin is this week. It is not the will of God that you live in doubt. So we're not talking about an environment where we say, do you have doubts? Good. We want you to stay questioning and doubting and uncertain and unstable. But it needs to be a place where we say it is fine because we all have them. Come on, we all have them at some time or another. And where are you going to go if you can't talk about it here? We talk about it together. So then in that environment, how in the world can we develop a sense of confidence? Jesus actually calls his disciples to a deeper level of faith in an atmosphere of deconstruction. This idea of deconstruction or rejecting your faith or leaving the church isn't a new idea at all. Listen to the record in John chapter 6. Then Jesus said... People can't come to me unless the Father brings them to me. Now, I'm going to pause there and make sure you feel the impact of that. What is he saying in that moment? He's saying that there is only one way to the Father. He's saying that to the Jews. He's saying your sacrifices and your systems won't get you to heaven. That if you're going to go to heaven, it's going to be through me. That is a radical statement to make today and a radical statement to make in that day. That's in John chapter 6, and crowds are thronging to hear him teach because he teaches as one having authority and not as the scribes. But when he made that statement, drew a line in the sand and said, I am the only way to the Father, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked this classic question, are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, to whom would we go? You alone have the words that give eternal life. We believe them, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Think about that declaration of faith. To whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. Peter is saying, I am absolutely convinced that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and I've committed my life to following you. And Jesus responded with this question or this statement. I chose the 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. You see, your faith in God can't be built on the responses of others. It can't be marked by whether people are coming or going or what's happening in your connect group. (laughs) It happens in your relationship with Jesus and Peter is saying, I am absolutely sure. I do not doubt this at all. Now, we know that later he's going to deny. He's going to have struggles. But here he says, I do not doubt. How many of you want to live in that place? I know I do. Okay, four of us. Great. The rest of you can wall around in your doubt. How many of you you want to live in certainty? Convinced. The truth. The rest of you, I want you to come forward. I want to lead you to Jesus. The Bible never demands blind faith or blind obedience. I've heard that all of my life. Well, I'm, I don't believe in blind faith. I've heard people, I don't either. But here's what I do believe, that we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Faith that is not blind, but faith that sees beyond what the natural eye can see. And to walk in that place of confidence. The book, To My Friend Who Left the Faith, makes this statement. Listen to this. All doubt rests on faith. All doubt rests on faith. To doubt one belief requires faith in some sort of other belief. You are never merely shedding faith when you doubt. You are moving your faith and placing it in something else. When you doubt belief A, you take your faith from A and move it to B. In other words, if you quit believing there is a God, you can't just live in that vacuum. That's not possible. You've replaced believing in God with a disbelief in God or a belief that no God exists. How many are hearing what I'm saying? So everybody has faith. It's just where do you put it? Where do you trust? Who do you trust in? Do you trust in your intellect, in your abilities? And you will all deal with people who wrestle with faith in such a way that their intellect or their experiences won't let them believe. And I think one of the first challenges we need to confront all of us with is we all walk by faith in something, somewhere. How do we help others come to a place of faith? How do you stay in a place of faith? How do you move from your doubt to a place of faith in the promises of God? And I'd suggest to you that the first thing you've got to do is research the evidence. Now this part of the message is going to be bigger than I have time to preach and longer than you have endurance to hear. So I'm going to point you down a road, not answer all of your questions. Christianity will stand up to the test of evidential evaluation. Everything we believe rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the crux of the matter. 
You can argue all the peripheral, and that's not at the heart of the issue. If Christianity is true, then Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christianity isn't true. The crux of the matter isn't something we celebrate on Easter Sunday. It is the heart, the fiber, the life, the core of everything we believe rests on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. I had a friend who was teaching teenagers, evangelical church, and it was Easter Sunday, and he walked in and said to his class of teenage senior high students, he said, I don't know if you've uh, read this article or not, but in archaeological review, they've just discovered and have been able to test and prove that they have found the bones of Jesus Christ. And they looked at him. He's the lead pastor. They're not going to, they believe he's telling the truth. I hope he doesn't go to hell for lying, but he. And so what do you think? And they kind of argued around a bit. I don't know. What does that mean? And they're shell-shocked. And he said, what I just told you isn't true. The reason to share that with you is to see how tightly your faith is anchored to the resurrection. And he said, as far as where I stand, if they said to me, they found the body of Jesus, they found the bones of Jesus, I would declare that to be a lie because I'm absolutely convinced that the evidence supports that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, you can make up evidence if you want to. I read a story, it's probably apocryphal, probably not true, but about a man who went to the Holy Land and in one town in uh, the, the Middle East, he went into a place where they had a biblical or a, a New Testament era museum. And in one of the displays, they had a skull. And in the skull, they said, this is the skull of the apostle Paul. Well, that's interesting. He thought, I wonder how they got that, kind of an oddity. And Walked out, went to the next town, another town where Jesus, or where, where Jesus had been preached by Paul. And in that museum, they also had a display and said, we have found the skull of the apostle Paul. And he said, you know, down the road, they've got one too, but this one's bigger. And he said, well, of course, that one's when he was younger. <laughs> we have to admit that people play with evidence. The issue is, what does the preponderance of evidence communicate? So what I'm going to say in the next little bit might be a little bit um, heady or academic, but if you'll hold on to it and pursue it, it will help you and anyone you talk to and establish to you that the research, the evidence says that Jesus rising from the dead is not an issue that is limited to blind faith believing, but is supported by the preponderance of evidence in the world at the time suggests, points to, declares that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not a faith issue, it's a historical reality. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but, he di- but if he did not raise him from the dead and the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised either. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain and you are still dead in your sins. One author said it this way. It doesn't matter if we think Christianity is great. It's either true or it isn't. It doesn't matter if we think we have found a faith that's made our family stronger. It doesn't matter if we found a faith that gave us peace, not at the core. The core is it's either true or it isn't true, and that has to be wrestled with. So let me ask you, could it have happened? Could it have happened that Jesus rose from the dead? And throughout history, there have been stories, testimonies, some not provable, some certainly spurious or fictitious, but there have always been accounts of people who have been raised from the dead. The real question is not to begin with, did it, but could it have? Because if it couldn't have, then let's put it away. The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, I would say all of the accounts of resurrection from the dead in Scripture go by without any credible argument against it. Lazarus is there. He's in the tomb. He's been in there for four days. They're weeping and crying because he is dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forward wrapped in grave clothes, and they unwrapped him, and he was alive. And there is no credible objection to that outside the biblical historical record that he rose from the dead. Miracles happen openly and regularly in other cultures. They don't happen here because we've made science and intellect and the rationality of man, our God, that gives us our direction rather than understanding there's something bigger than we are. I read in about a woman in the, this was in, not in a Christian publication, but in BBC, British Broadcasting Company News recorded this. A British woman whose heart stopped beating for six hours. Think about that. What happens if your heart isn't beating for six hours? She's been brought back to life in what doctors have described as an exceptional case. Audrey Schumann developed severe hypothermia when she was caught in a snowstorm and hiking in the Spanish uh, Pyrenees with her husband in November. Doctors say is the longest cardiac arrest ever recorded in Spain. So if you want evidence that it could happen, don't even read here. Just read in history, read in science, read what happens. And there are testimonies all around of people that were pronounced dead, had no evidence of life. And I'm suggesting to you that if it could happen in Britain, it could happen anywhere. <laughs> it could happen anywhere. Well, did it? Did it happen? Did it really happen? Think about this. In 1 Corinthians 15... Those who saw Jesus post-resurrection are listed. Peter, the disciples, 500 brothers. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe. The apostles and Paul. What is important about Paul's listing of those names? It's not just so that you and I have a record. Here, in essence, is what Paul is saying. 
Many of these individuals are still alive. Go talk to them. Investigate their claims. In other words, Christianity has nothing to hide. I don't have a list of witnesses called before the tribunal. I'm telling you, here's everyone that saw him. Go ask any one of them what happened. And not one of them recanted. Not one of them said it wasn't true. The testimony was consistent in the era from the apostles and the disciples and the 500 yes we saw him and he's alive we couldn't even do a conspiracy like Watergate and keep it quiet if there was a conspiracy somebody somebody would have revealed it Norman Wright talks about it this way in terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept the case we've presented in a book called The Resurrection, that the tomb plus appearances combination is what, is what generated early Christian belief. The empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus generated what is now understood as early Christian belief. It is as watertight as one is likely to find. We are left with the secure historical conclusion from all of the testimonies that the tomb was empty. Various meetings took place not only between Jesus and his followers, including an initial skeptic, but also in at least one case between Jesus and people who had not been among his followers. I regard this conclusion as coming in the same sort of category of historical historical probability so high as to be virtually certain as the death of Augustus in AD 14 or the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So if you take the same standard that measures the death of Augustus in AD 14, the same standard that historically establishes the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, you can't play by two separate sets of rules. Those same rules say Jesus lived in the Middle East. He died on the cross. He was put in a tomb and he rose from the dead. The preponderance of evidence all around says the resurrection is true. You don't need blind faith. You just need to do the research. Peter J. Kearney dates this core confession of the resurrection to within two years of the events that the confession recounts. This makes it clear that the bedrock of Christianity isn't new. It wasn't made up decades or centuries after Jesus' ministry on earth, but it comes from the earliest of his followers. Another great writer by the name of Lee Strobel was interviewed. You say, you're throwing a bunch of quotes at us. Absolutely I am. Because I want you to see this isn't something we anchor to because we stumbled into an Assemblies of God church. That the historical orthodox faith of the church is defendable by normal analytical investigative processes and will stand up to scrutiny and to the research of the evidence. But I love what Strobel had to say. Someone said, can you prove that Christianity is true? Listen to what he said. I don't think we need to definitely prove anything. I think we have to show that the evidence points in a direction where the most logical and rational next step is to take a step of faith and receive the free gift of grace. The preponderance of evidence 
<laughs> Don't listen to a 20th century skeptic or a 20th century deconstruction, deconstructionist or an ex-evangelical. Think of it as a court case. Put all the evidence on the table and the decision has to be he rose from the dead. Hallelujah. He rose from the dead. So you say, Pastor, are you saying that all other religions are wrong? Yes! <laughs> Need I say it louder? Well, you're narrow-minded. You're closed-minded. You're judgmental. Listen, I shouldn't do this. This isn't in my notes, but it sounds really good in here. Let's see how it sounds when it comes out. If you can cancel the credibility of someone who wrote an email 20 years ago and throw them on the ash heap, then I'm telling you, I have just as much authority to cancel every religious expression that denies the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, they are wrong. Yes, they are not true. Yes, they need to be confronted and refuted. They are not true. Two opposing thoughts cannot be true. No other religion has a resurrected savior unless you go to cultic worship prior to Christ. And prior to Christ, there were false messiahs that rose up. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Not one of the false resurrection saviors ever gathered a following. Not one of the false resurrection saviors ever started a movement. But in a little place called Israel, where this, this rabbi rises from the dead, it began a fire that moved to the upper room and resulted in an outpouring of Pentecost. And from that day to this, the large largest faith-based movement the world has ever known has burned its way around the globe because there is something supernatural, something undeniable, something unmistakable, something irrefutable in this resurrection. No one's ever been able to do it since because all of the pre-pseudo-resurrections were silenced when Jesus legitimately rose from the dead. I'm getting blessed. I, you can go have your coffee, but I'm just telling you, I do not walk by a blind, irrational, stupid idea. I, I live by a biblical reality that will stand up to scrutiny. And if you have enough integrity or honesty and you're questioning the reality of Christianity, then research the evidence or shut up. The Greek word is shutteth upeth. <laughs> no, that's King James. I'm sorry. That's not what else? Second, research the evidence. Second, rehearse your experience. We have three accounts of Paul's conversion experience, and two of those are used in his defense of the faith. Your faith story 
is important in rescuing the perishing because it is difficult to be argued against. Yes, there is historical evidence, but we live in a world that doesn't just want to know, did he die and rise from the dead then? What is he doing now? What's the witness to his resurrection today? It's rehearsing, retelling what he did for you. And I'm going to tell you this morning, you can say whatever you want to say, do whatever you want to do, but I have some landmarks in my life where Jesus met me and touched me and helped me. And you can say anything you want to say, but I was there and I guess I ought to know what happened because it happened to me and you are not taking it away. You say, well, there are people in false cults who say they have an experience. Oh, well, stop. My experience is based on the reality of the research and it's defendable historically and affirmed in the present tense. I've shared this before, and uh, I've had people tell me, I ha I've told you the story of 27 warts on my hands, and they had been there growing and growing. I could tell you the whole story. And I felt like God spoke to me to curse them like Jesus cursed the fig tree, and they'd go away. They were 27 of them. Listen, when a Walmart cashier doesn't want to give you change, because your hands are so bad. Pick it up yourself. One day I'm driving down Highway 30 and I heard God say, look at your hands and every one of those were gone. You say, well, now pastor, pastor, you know that the viral impact of warts can run its course and then they eventually will disappear. I also know that a meteor could hit you in the head. <laughs> you, <laughs> you weren't there. They weren't your hands. He didn't speak to you. But what I know is, when I looked at my hands, Every one of the warts were gone without a mark left behind because the resurrected Jesus still heals the sick today and I'm testifying to that fact as I stand here this morning. I'm just telling you. He's met me in my lowest place. He's suspended me in my highest experience. He's walked with me day by day. And while there may have been times where I wondered where he was, it's like footprints in the sand. There were two sets. Now there's one. Where were you? Those are the times that I carried you. I'm telling you, I can give you a book, story after story, account after account, where he walks with me and he talks with me. This is not a philosophical debate it is an experiential reality and you will never 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 take away from me what he has done for me tell your story rehearse it this is what I was this is what I am this is where I was going this is where I'm heading why do you believe in Jesus because I've watched him change lives and he changed mine. I was a wicked, horrible sinner. Guilt piling on top of me. When I first gave my life to Jesus at eight. 
I did it again and again and again and again until I was 12. So I can't tell you, yes, I was a murderer. I was a thief. I was a drug runner. I was a mafia don. But I can tell you the day that he showed me the secrets of my heart. And the secrets of my heart condemned me. And he lifted my load. I remember when my burdens rolled away. I had carried them for years, night and day. When I sought the blessed Lord and I took him at his word, all at once, all my burdens rolled away. Does anybody else have that story? We need to tell that story. This is what he did for me. And you can argue all you want and you can give me all the books you want to read, but I'm telling you, Jesus has done something for me. Now, I'm going to say something here that might annoy you and I am certainly okay with that because I actually have thought about what I'm going to say next. If, well, if you can't tell me anything Jesus has done for you, you are not a believer. I don't care what card you signed. I don't care if you took all four weeks of launch pad. I don't care if you clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give to the poor. I don't care how much you give in the offering. If you can't tell me something that Jesus has changed in you, you've never met him. You're not a believer because when we meet him, all things pass away and all things have become new. And Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons? We've done great works in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because a religious faith will not get you into heaven. An experiential faith will get you into heaven. What has he done for you? You ought to be ready to tell it. You'll be ready to talk about the things that you're excited about. You'll be ready to talk about the experiences that have blessed you. What has he done? Be ready to tell it. Well, people are tired of hearing it. I don't care if they're tired of hearing it. I don't care what they are going through. We need to rehearse the story that what we're talking about is not a theoretical moment from a historical evaluation. It is a very present reality. I have a story to tell and I'm going to tell it to the nations. Come on, is there anyone in the house this morning? Evangelism requires a spoken word. Christians who are... <laughs> I'm going to say it, thought about it too. It, didn't, it sounded better earlier. Christians who are cowardly love to quote St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach everywhere you go, and if necessary, use words. And then, taken completely out of context and misconstruing what he was talking about, we say, I don't have to tell the story. I just have to live the story. Show me a single account in the New Testament where somebody came to faith in Christ because of how somebody lived. The reality is 
They believed what they said because of how they lived. But evangelism requires an oral expression of truth. Be ready to give an answer. Preach the good news to all creation. It's got to come out of your mouths. Find somewhere, sometimes, someplace to say, come and let me tell you what the good Lord has done for me. It's a story that needs to be told. It needs to come out of our mouth. We need to talk about it more. Oh, I know in the culture that we live in, we get mocked for it, ridiculed. What's wrong with you, narrow-minded moron? And you can call me anything that you want, but I have a story, and I'm going to tell it. Rehearse your experience. Research the evidence. Rehearse your experience. And last, respond to God's essence. And that's another big doctrinal discussion. But what does essence mean? It's a Greek adjective, usia, which means substance or being. So it's a whole teaching of who God is in his nature and his substance. And that the qualities of God are visible. Some are invisible, but it testifies to the existence of God. What does that mean? Simply stated, it is the nature of God to reveal himself to everyone on the planet. Well, what about people who have never heard? Let's just back up and let scripture be our source and understand his essence. What is at the core of his being? What testifies to who he is? It is the nature and character of God to reveal himself. In the Old Testament, he's called the one who reveals. In the New Testament, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God is not hiding, hoping you find him. God is giving a revelation of himself everywhere you turn. It is the nature of God. So when you begin to tell the story, when you're having doubts, when you're talking to someone who has doubts, if we're going to rescue the perishing, you can research the evidence, scriptural and historical. You can rehearse your story, but think about, remember, respond to the essence of God. Whenever you talk to someone, he has already talked to them. His presence is already there. He's already dealing with their heart. Provenient grace, he is always previous. Here's what you know. As soon as you begin to reach to someone, one, God by his spirit has already begun to move because it is the nature of God to reveal himself, to show himself alive. He has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in the conscience of man. Belief in God is inherent in mankind. Now, let me illustrate it to you this way. Do you know, um, I want to be, I, I, I be careful how I say this. We can debate all day if you want to debate white privilege. I'll have that conversation with you. And there isn't any way for you to look at our past and say that the playing surface has always been level. You cannot say that. It's not always been level. In the realm of faith, there is a, there is a, an American European arrogance that leads to disbelief. If 
you take Caucasian America and Caucasian Europe out of the question. On the rest of the planet, rejecting a supernatural worldview is basically unknown. Even in the 21st century, most people around the world have no problem with supernatural events. Eliminate North America and Europe from the conversation and there is no conversation. Most of the non-white world has no problem believing in supernatural entities, miracles, and life after death. This fact alone should give us pause before we denounce a belief as ignorant. This deconstruction is a product of arrogant Caucasians. It's almost as if what Festus said about Paul has become true in our world. Much learning has made you insane. We don't want to believe. People ask me regularly, why don't we see in the United States the kind of miracles that they see in Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America? It's because we live in a culture of disbelief in the supernatural. We think the supernatural is, is the investigation discovery show on Bigfoot. And we laugh at those people because we have made rationality, science, and a postmodern mindset to be our God. And if you take our rationality out of the equation, everywhere else, people believe in God. Atheism is a construct of Europe and North American post-Christian seduction. Think about how arrogant that makes us. When in our culture, we argue against the existence of God, when the rest of the world embraces it clearly. It's been said that there's a God-shaped void in the heart of every man. While this is not a biblical quote, it certainly captures biblical thought. Paul alludes to that, the essence of God everywhere around us, if we'll quit denying it and ignoring it. He says, I found an altar with these words written on it to a God who is not known. You worship a God you do not know, and this is the God I'm willing to tell you about. He's saying this God is here, he's present, and what is he saying? There's something in them that wants to believe there is a God, and there's got to be more and something more to be understood. John tells us that light came into the world and shines on every man who is born. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter that God is not willing that any should perish. John tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to reprove the world. We have the parable of the lost sheep that he leaves the 99 to find the one that was lost. God's nature is everywhere present and man must work that much harder to shut out his voice. So you can have an assurance. When you speak for him, he will be speaking too because he has already spoken. Yeah. Woo! That, that's good stuff, Maynard. That's good stuff. So where are you today? <laughs> How many of you remember 1995? <laughs> Some of you don't even remember that decade. What are you talking about? Um, 1995, a musician by the name of Andre Crouch. 
I'm going to remember Andre Crouch. First time I saw him was at the Waterloo Candle Congress wearing a purple velour suit, and I wasn't sure you could go to heaven dressed like that. (laughs) But when he sang, he had a message for that generation. And one of the songs that's really kind of glitchy now, kind of maybe a little cheesy now, and kind of fit that culture, expressed the truth that I want to end with. It was that old song, I've Got Confidence. When trouble is in my way, I can't tell my night from day. I'm tossed from side to side like a ship on the raging tide. I don't worry, I don't fret. My God has never failed me yet. Troubles come from time to time, but that's all right. I'm not the worrying kind because I've got confidence. God is going to see me through. No matter what the case may be, I know he's going to fix it for me. He captured an assurance that I want to give to you. When you're doubting, this needs to be a safe place. But just be assured. It's not our goal for you to stay there. Here's the thrust of my heart and I believe of our church. Some years ago, a lesbian couple who had adopted a child came to worship service and talked about how much they enjoyed the worship and the preaching and said, we can only come here if you will affirm us. And I said, we will love you as Jesus loves you. And I'm going to preach the truth to you. Well, I need to know that you're going to endorse us. I will endorse that you are a child created by God who wants to love you and bring you into his kingdom. No, I want to know if you're going to endorse our lifestyle. I said, are you asking me if I'm going to say that homosexuality is okay? Yes. Not going to happen. You're going to hear me say that there is one way that's right, one sexual expression that's healthy, one man, one woman committed together for life. And she said, then we're leaving. I said, I'm going to ask you one thing. When She said, we'll find another church. I said, when you find a church that endorses your lifestyle, that you experience what you've experienced this morning, come back and tell me about it because it doesn't exist. I want this to be a place where it's safe to talk about our doubts, but there's a confidence that we are not going to affirm or cement you in a place of uncertainty, but we will walk with you until you have confidence that the evidence speaks, your experience speaks, and the essence of God speaks. And he wants to move you and your friends and your neighbors to a place where you can say, we believe and are sure that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and we will surrender our lives to him. Our lives depend on it. Hebrews chapter three says it this way, if you'll stand with me. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. How are we gonna hold our confidence steadfast until the end? 
He said, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. Listen to him. He will answer your questions and he will give you strength. My prayer this morning is that if you're in a place of questioning, your faith will become solidified. And when you talk to someone on the outside who's been indoctrinated by the world's foolishness called wisdom, don't back up, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, because where we stand stands on the strength of historical evidence, on the power of personal experience, and of the authority of the divine essence. He rose from the dead. Let's let that message be sounded. So long I have searched for life's meaning Enslaved by the world and my creed. Oh, then the door of my prison was open by
It is time for us to quit taking a back seat to the skeptics. Have you ever had someone tell you something was true that you knew wasn't true? I was in a pet store buying fish for the aquarium not to eat. I have had aquariums since I was 12. That doesn't make me an expert, but I have had experience. And a young lady who meant well began to talk to me about the fish I was buying and if I knew how to care for them. And I said, ma'am, have you ever had an aquarium? No. Have you ever cared for fish? No. Then you don't know what you're talking about. And I've had aquariums for a long time. Here's what I want you to think. The next time someone begins to question and makes you feel stupid for your Christianity, I want you to say, have you ever met him? Come on, have you ever met him? Have you ever talked to him? Have you ever walked with him? Well, I have. I have. And I'm not the one that's wrong. We need to stop backing up to the arrogant pressure of the skeptic and start standing up in the authority of the Holy Spirit and let the truth be told. Amen? If you love him, let me hear your hands this morning. Thank you so much for your faithful giving. We are making progress in areas, and thank you for being consistent. God blesses givers. How many of you believe that? I believe that. Thank you for your faithful giving, however you do it. Turn and greet someone and say, I believe in Jesus, and shake their hand.